0: My topic um, for today is is something that I kinda had to quit. I had to quit a long time ago. It was one of the very last things that I did quit.
1: Yeah, I remember you had a pretty tough battle with methamphetamines
0: (laughs) for a while there. Yeah, I was fluctuating weight like crazy. Is
1: your topic today methamphetamines, Jason?
0: For somebody who was like overweight, I mean, for doing meth, I was like, damn, not even the meth was helping. It was just a diet technique.
1: Your diet was terrible.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I'm one of those people that just, they have to try every diet.
1: I remember when the meth diet was very popular. (laughs) It started in LA, typical. (laughs) It was one of those trendy celebrity diets, and then it worked its
0: way over to the East Coast. Yeah. Yeah, no, I did meth after I did the Santa Clara diet, for sure. (laughs)
1: Hey everyone and welcome to Wiki University, a podcast that dives down the rabbit hole of Wikipedia to explore the sum of all human knowledge. I'm Kyle Burseth, your host and dean of this fine institution, and as always I'm joined by our summa cum laude, Jason Nunez. If this is your first time at WikiU, thanks for tuning in. Jason and I are comedians, and this is a podcast that combines learning and comedy, so it's for smart people and dumb people alike. In every episode, Jason and I get together over Zoom and attempt to link two very different topics across Wikipedia. So strap on and strap in, because on this episode of WikiU, we'll be exploring the giant heads of Easter Island in the South Pacific and floating our way to the preferred drink of Jason's childhood and his motherland, the pride of Peru, the drink that goes with everything, Inca Cola. Mmm, tasty. So what's your topic? Do you, you want to... my topic... Oh, it's methamphetamine. My
0: topic... <laughs> But I mean, it, I guess if you, I, don't, I haven't, you know, really, if you vaporize methamphetamines and make it into like some sort of like liquid, it kind of looks like mm-hmm. it, I suppose. My topic is, it, it's dear to my heart, man, because I grew up drinking this uh, and it's Inca cola. I don't know if you've ever had Inca cola.
1: Oh, I haven't. And I was going to suggest maybe we should do a taste test. A little bonus content taste test of some inca-colas, but you said you're off the cola. I'm off
0: the cola, but if it's if we're just testing things out, uh, I wouldn't mind digging into that.
1: Do it for the content, man. We'll get some inca-cola, we'll get some methamphetamines and we'll make some <laughs> great vids.
0: Ooh, put them both together. I'll definitely be addicted to something if I could do both of those. <laughs> but have you have you tasted? Uh, do you know uh, do you know of it? Do they have it in LA? They have to have it in LA right?
1: They have it in the more Hispanic grocery store, Latinx grocery stores. Oh what are God. we calling them these days? I can't keep up, but I love these. Grocery well, since it's
0: L.A., it's probably a Mexican store. So go ahead.
1: That that is a decent chance.
0: Okay.
1: And I have seen Inca Cola all over the shelves. I've never. I'm not a soda drinker anymore myself. When did you quit? I don't know. Probably when I was like
0: 25. Nice. That's about the time that I started thinking about quitting. But uh, but yeah, no, I definitely, I had to quit. You know, I just, um, again, I was around that age in my 20s where I was just like, oh man, I did some damage uh, in terms of like uh, drinking in college and stuff like that. So I was just like trying to get healthier. And one of the first things that I quit was not just Inca Cola, but sodas, period, soft drinks.
1: Some people start their day by drinking a Diet Coke and then drink like eight more. Yeah. during the day and I was never a soda drinker like that I mean I'd have a soda with a meal or something but I can't believe how much soda I drank as a child
0: yeah I mean I used to drink uh like soda was like the drink with every meal I mean except for like breakfast but like especially dinner like every I would have at least a can of wow if it wasn't uh inca cola it was uh coca-cola because my family oh I
1: poured coca-cola in my Reese's puffs in the morning <laughs>
0: that's gross and then when i got older you know i i I was like oh i can just go to the store and buy my own so instead of buying like cans or cases (laughs) i just buy a straight up two liter this
1: is what it means to be an adult i can finally abuse my body as much as i want
0: that's why i had to give up the stuff i thought to myself i'm like i think i've i think i've had enough soda like if I were just have a regular amount throughout my whole life.
1: Right, right. Your teeth are falling out and your feet have been cut off. Jason has no feet. I mean yeah, I just got for those down there. listening. Yeah. Yeah. Jason <laughs> Jason had a terrible meth addiction and terrible diabetes. Yeah. His legs were
0: just filled with Inca Cola. Yeah. They had to dra- yeah they had to drain my kneecaps every week. And it was just inca-cola. it's just yellow liquid coming <laughs> it's out.
1: It's just high fructose corn syrup, yeah,
0: yeah, out. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't have health insurance, so it was just like a friend of mine siphoning siphoning out the inca-cola out of my kneecaps
1: you can you can rebottle that and drink it again.
0: <laughs> I do exude like a yellow uh energy <laughs> yeah. out. You have jaundice. Yeah, it's just years (laughs) of Inca-Cola.
1: You need nutrition. (laughs) For God's sake, eat some vegetables.
0: I did. I changed it. Broccoli every day, baby. I'm a little broccoli head.
1: That's awesome. All right. I think we should end the episode on Inca-Cola. Okay. And start with my topic today, and we'll be linking them up. So why don't we read a a little bit about Inca-Cola, and then we'll go straight to my topic.
0: Ooh. Cool. Let's do it.
1: Inca Cola, also known as the Golden Cola in international advertising, is a soft drink that was created in Peru in 1935 by British immigrant Joseph Robinson Lindley.
0: Ugh, who was that? Is he from? Eng- is he from He's England? A Br- British it- dude. Of course, it was.
1: You know, immigrants going to Peru and trying to pull themselves up by their bootstraps.
0: Right. I think this is why I don't like foreigners. See, see what I mean? Like you just. People from other was, places come into your country, and they invent, you know, diabetes. Essentially,
1: he was like a conquistador of his time. Most
0: definitely, Inca Cola was just basically my my people's. Uh, what is it? AIDS blanket or what? It, or
1: it, well, yeah, they were <laughs> AIDS
0: blankets. You remember how Christopher Columbus gave all those Native Americans his AIDS?
1: Yeah, Columbus came here and started the AIDS epidemic. That's why everyone wants to take the statues down of him, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's let's get moving here. Hey, the soda has a, a sweet. <laughs> We've learned nothing. The soda the soda The soda has a sweet fruity flavor that somewhat resembles its main ingredient, lemon verbena. Americans compare its flavor to bubblegum or cream soda, sometimes categorized as a champagne cola. It has been There's... described as an, inqui- an acquired taste whose intense color alone is enough to drive away the uninitiated. There's that golden. Hell yeah. Mmm, <laughs> it looks like pee.
0: Oh, I'd rather drink something that's completely black and looks like tar. Okay. That's a lot better.
1: The Coca-Cola company owns the Inca-Cola trademark everywhere but in Peru. In Peru, the Inca-Cola trademark is owned by Corporación Inca-Cola Peru S.A., which since 1999 is a joint venture between the Coca-Cola company and the Lindley
0: family. It sounded like you said, um, like Corporation uh, Inca-Cola S.A. Uh, yeah, S.A. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucked up, Kyle. <laughs>
1: Well, I'm just trying (laughs) to spice it up a little, you know. Inca-Cola is a source of national pride and patriotism in Peru, a national icon. Yep. Inca-Cola is available in parts of South America, North America, and Europe. And while it has not enjoyed major success outside Peru, it can be found in Latin America specialty shops worldwide. Inca-Cola is sold in bottles with an Inca motif. All right, so we know a little bit about Inca-Cola. Let's start with my topic, which is Easter Island. I don't really care about the island itself. I want to know about the statues. Uh, do you know anything about Easter Island?
0: Um, no, aside from that level in Super Mario Brothers, I, bl- I remember playing where they have a, l- a bunch of those like uh, Easter Island uh, heads. It wasn't more the body, but it was these giant heads. It's a little scary, honestly. Which part? The giant head people. That they're just there? Is that like I'm looking at your picture right now. Is that where they're found or are they're everywhere in Easter Island?
1: I don't know. Let's find out. Let's I, do it. I've never been, but I would like to go to Easter where Island. Where is Easter Island located? I think the South Pacific. Okay. All right. Easter Island is an island and special territory of Chile. I didn't know Chile owned it mm. in the southeastern Pacific Ocean at the southernmost point of the Polynesian Triangle in Oceania. Easter Island is most famous for its nearly 1,000 extant monumental statues called Moai created by the early Rapa Nui people. In 1995, UNESCO named Easter Island a World Heritage Site, with much of the island protected by the Rapa Nui National Park. We covered UNESCO World Heritage Sites In the past on the podcast.
0: So wait, it's not just one island, it's a bunch of islands? So what do you mean? Or like the region? No, it's one island.
1: Easter Island is one of the most remote inhabited islands in the world. The nearest inhabited land. Wait, so it's not inhabited?
0: Makes it even more creepy.
1: It is believed that Easter Island's Polynesian inhabitants arrived on Easter Island sometime near 1200. It doesn't say BC or AD. I think it's probably AD. Yeah, that's my guess. They created a thriving and industrious culture as evidenced by the island's numerous, enormous stone moai and other artifacts. However, land clearing for cultivation and the introduction of the Polynesian rat led to gradual deforestation. By the time of European arrival in 1722, the island's population was estimated to be 2,000 to 3,000. Little liberal arts college they got going. European diseases, Peruvian slave raiding. Whoa, Jason. Peruvian slave raiding?
0: That's pretty fucked up.
1: Every time you talk about Peruvians, you guys are always on the right side of history.
0: Yeah, no, we still are.
1: Okay, well, the Peruvian slave raiding expeditions in the 1860s and emigration to other islands. Such as Tahiti further depleted the population, reducing it to a low of 111 native inhabitants in 1877.
0: All right, so, I'm going- okay, let me understand. So, you're saying just because my people have been enslaved means we wouldn't be able to enslave other people? Is that what you're saying? What the fuck, dude?
1: i'm sorry i i hate so to you're you're saying that we're rights.
0: not capable that our our brains no. peruvian <laughs> brains aren't big enough to wrap our wrap our heads around enslavement that
1: is what i'm that is what i'm saying that's what i'm saying pretty fucked up you gave me the impression that peruvians were such a great people that they would not partake in slavery
0: uh, i never said that first off they are great people and second off you're implying that we wouldn't be capable of Doing the enslavement.
1: No, if there's anything I know about Peruvians, they're sneaky (laughs) and they're very capable of enslaving people.
0: (laughs) All right, I think we're closer on the same page, so yeah. (laughs) Okay, thank
1: you. (laughs) All right, I'm going to Moai or Maui. Moai. So the spelling is M-O-A-I. Moi, moi. I don't know the correct pronunciation, All right. They're monolithic human figures carved by the Rapa Nui people on Easter Island in eastern Polynesia between the years of 1250 and 1500. Nearly half are still at Rano Raraku, the main Moai quarry, but hundreds were transported from there and set on stone platforms called Ahu around the island's perimeter. Almost all Moai have overly large heads, three eighths the size of the whole statue. The moai Wait, are so, chiefly so. The,
0: the so the statues are called moais.
1: Yeah, the statues are called moai. And does
0: it say uh, who moved them? You were saying like they were shifted to go around the perimeter. Was that like so?
1: Let's see. I went to history. The statues were carved by the Polynesian colonies. Uh, in addition to representing deceased ancestors, the moai. Once they were erected on Ahu, may have also been regarded as the embodiment of powerful living or former chiefs. Mm. The larger the statue placed upon an Ahu, the more mana the chief who commissioned it had. I don't know what mana is. This is like, I don't know. I I assume power. Um, So transportation. Maybe this has an answer to your question. This is under transportation of the statues. Since the island was largely treeless by the time the Europeans first visited, the movement of the statues was a mystery for a long time. Pollen analysis has now established that the island was almost totally forested until 1200 AD. The tree pollen disappeared from the record by 1650. It is not known exactly how the moai were moved across the island, Earlier, researchers assumed that the process almost certainly required human energy, ropes, and possibly wooden sledges, and or rollers, as well as leveled tracks across the island. We kind of covered this in Stonehenge, and I don't know that they knew how they moved them then. Another theory suggests that the moai were placed on top of logs and were rolled to their destinations. If that theory is correct, it would take 50 to 150 people to move the moai. The most recent study—geez, just tell me that—the most recent study demonstrates from the evidence in the archaeological record that the statues were harnessed with ropes from two sides and made to walk by tilting them from side to side— while pulling forward. So, can you imagine a bunch of these statues walking across? Dude, That's the literally island? how
0: I move shit that's too heavy. Like, and I don't, <laughs> yeah, like, I like don't, a dresser. Yeah, I don't have anybody else to help me. Like, I'll just do that. I'll walk it. I can totally see that doing. And so they're like, I don't think it would take that many people, uh, the way they were saying, like 50 to whatever. I'm just saying, I feel like these natives would be a lot more built. Than what we think, you know yeah what I mean? like they're out in the wilderness they got to survive like they were lifting heavy shit
1: here's a general description of like how big they are the production and transportation of the more than 900 statues is considered a remarkable creative and physical feat the tallest moai erected called paro was almost 33 feet high and weighed 82 tons To give you a sense, I think a Honda Civic is about a ton. You know, I've pushed a Honda Civic by myself. I was just about
0: to say, you see these strongman competitions, they're pulling uh, 18 wheelers by their teeth.
1: Yeah, you get 150 people my size even, we can push 82 Honda Civics.
0: That'd be a sight to see, baby.
1: One unfinished sculpture, if completed, would have been approximately 69 feet tall with a weight of 145 to 165 tons. The moai were toppled in the late 18th century and 19th century, possibly as a result of European contact or tribal wars. The human figurines would be outlined in the rock wall first, then chipped away until only the image was left. The overlarge heads have heavy brows and elongated noses with a distinctive fish-hook-shaped curl of the nostrils. The lips protrude at a thin pout. Like the nose, the ears are elongated and oblong in form. The jawlines stand out against the truncated neck. The torsos are heavy, and sometimes the clavicles are subtly outlined in stone. Ooh, I like the nuance. The arms are carved in bas-relief, and rest against the body in various positions, hands and long slender fingers resting along the crests of the hips, meeting the loincloth with the thumb, sometimes pointing towards the
0: navel. That was the first, um, the V, like the V pointing to their dick. These
1: tribesmen, they were like, the V's important. That's going to get a lot of likes.
0: Yeah. (laughs) They wanted the the D'Angelo.
1: Ride me like a pony or whatever
0: that is. You talk, you're talking about pony, like uh, that's that's by uh, fucking genuine, idiot.
1: <laughs> all right, well, I bet genuine had those V's too, idiot.
0: <laughs> you know the the statues they do. Uh, I didn't. I didn't, I can't see it from this picture, but they all look like they have like their hands in their pockets. Actually,
1: well, many archaeologists suggest that the statues. This is under symbolism. Many archaeologists suggest. Statues were thus symbols of authority and power, both religious and political, but they were not only symbols. To the people who erected and used them, they were actual repositories of sacred spirit. Carved stone and wooden objects in ancient Polynesian religions, when properly fashioned and ritually prepared, were believed to be charged by a magical spiritual essence called manna. There's the manna. Archaeologist believes the statues were a representation of the ancient Polynesians' ancestors. Okay, let's move on to a different topic here. How quickly do you want to finish?
0: Because oh, you know I, me, I usually don't finish quick, bro, but you know, it's really up to you. Depends on what kind of damage you do.
1: Just, just answer me <laughs> quick. God damn. I don't know where you want to go here. We could go to tattoos and body paint, uh, we could go to slave trade that began on the island in 1862 we could go to shibuya station in tokyo i don't know why that's in here
0: yeah that's that's cool that'll take us somewhere
1: you want to go to shibuya station
0: well i'll tell you what i'm more interested in the tokyo because um peru has a lot of uh, japanese influence so we had a japanese president really you know, so they're actually yeah so uh, i believe his name was Fujimori, and i believe he definitely stole a lot of money and then fleed uh, peru <laughs>
1: That sounds familiar. That does sound familiar. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, here's Unicode character. I don't know what Unicode is, but I think it's emojis. Because in 2010, Moai was included as an emoji. It's that little Easter Island head in Unicode version 6.0 under the code point something. The official Unicode name for the emoji is spelled M-O-Y-A-I. This is the name of a statue near Shibuya Station in Tokyo. All right, I'm going to
0: Shibuya Station. Ah, so they have one over there too, see?
1: All right, Shibuya Station. I think I'm pronouncing that right, but probably not. Shibuya. Shibuya. Shibuya Station is a railway station in Shibuya, Tokyo, Japan, operated jointly by East Japan Railway Company, blah, blah, blah. With 2.4 million passengers on an average weekday in 2004, it is the fourth busiest commuter rail station in Japan and the world. So Japan's the busiest place ever, I guess. Handling a large amount of commuter traffic between the city center And suburbs to the south and west.
0: There's something to be said for that, for them being so busy. They're like 10 years ahead of us. Everyone's like, let's do it. Let's go. Let's move. Everyone's working. Everyone's moving ahead. Always looking forward while still respecting the past. No, that's
1: not totally accurate. Most of the industry in Japan is centered around cities. And they're really making a push for people to move out into the uh, more remote parts of the country. And they're even paying people to live in those areas, Jayon. Ooh!
0: Would they pay somebody over from over out of the country to move in there or no?
1: They are and they were. Really? But you have to live there for like 10 years or
0: something. Meaning like you have to live there for 10 years and then they'll pay you?
1: I mean, I might be talking out of my ass here, but I believe you there is are. some
0: requirement that that you got to be there yeah.
1: doing work in that area. Like you, you can't just buy a house there and then be living in the U.S., Right, right. The Japanese won't stand for it. They'll make you perform a seppuku. A seppuku. On March 1st, 1885, Shibuya Station first opened as a stop on the Shingawa Line, a predecessor of the present-day Yamanote Line. Here's some interesting history. In 1946, the infamous Shibuya Incident, a gang fight involving hundreds of people, occurred in front of the station. Damn. I'm going there. Here's the Shibuya incident, and you said in our previous episode that everything that is a historical event is an incident.
0: Yeah, I did say that. Those are my, that's my words. Your words, not mine.
1: Yeah. The Shibuya incident was a violent confrontation which occurred on June 1946 between rival gangs near Shibuya Station in Tokyo, Japan. The years after World War II saw Japan as a defeated nation and the Japanese people had to improvise. They all took classes at... Upright Citizens Brigade.
0: The UCB at Shibuya. (laughs) Exactly. Because of COVID, they had to close down the Shibuya UCB uh, school.
1: It was a sad day. Amy Poehler, she should have put a little
0: more money into it. Yeah, a couple more yens.
1: But a lot lot of people don't know, but Amy Poehler hates Japanese people. Yeah, that's a
0: fact. (laughs) Have you ever seen any (laughs) Asians on uh, Parks and Rec? I don't think so. Aziz on Sariq? That doesn't count. I mean real Asians.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um... Okay, in the chaos of the post-war recovery, large and very lucrative black markets opened throughout Japan. Various gangs fought for control over them. One major import on the black market was Inca soda.
0: Get out of here. Are you serious? No. No, because you couldn't even... Inca cola, you idiot. How do you forget the cola part? (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: there were many there were also many non-japanese third nationals in post-war japan these quote-unquote third nationals or third country people were former subjects of the empire of japan whose citizenship was then transferred to other countries like china and korea the shibuya incident involved former japanese citizens from the japanese provinces of formosa now called taiwan Fighting against native Japanese yakuza gangs. After the fight, the Chinese nationalist government stepped forward to defend the Formosas, Formosans. Wow. Let's. I'm gonna go Damn. down to the black markets. This is a pretty long article for one incident.
0: Hey, man. I'm sure that incident changed a lot uh, in Japan. So.
1: Okay. The air. This is post-war Japan. The air raids on Japan. Which you war? You don't really hear about post, post World War II. Japan which I've never really read too much about or heard too much about it it's kind of like we dropped the bombs and then it was like yeah
0: hey war's over yeah they don't go into that in a. US American history class that everyone takes no they do not
1: all right this is post-war Japan this is what led up to the Shibuya incident. The air raids on Japan left millions displaced in urban centers and food shortages created by bad harvests and the demands of war worsened when the importation of food from Korea, Taiwan, and China ceased. Over 5.1 million Japanese returned to Japan during the 15 months following October 1, 1945. Alcohol and drug abuse became major problems. Deep exhaustion Declining morale and despair was so widespread that it was termed the kaiodatsu condition, which means state of lethargy. Inflation was rampant and many people turned to the black market for even the most basic goods. So here's the black markets. The black markets were among the first economic entities to spring up after the defeat of Japan. People who were desperate for food and basic necessities turned to the black market with its inflated prices as the official lines of supply in stores had either been destroyed or had nothing to sell. Four days after the surrender of Japan on August 14th, 1945, the Ozu gang placed an ad in newspapers asking for factory owners who up to that point only sold to the military to come to the gang headquarters and discuss distribution of their products. Hell yeah. Come to our headquarters. Bring some toilet paper, bring some soaps, bring some food, whatever you got, we'll take it.
0: I mean, yeah, dude, I'd also join a gang too. If I can't go to my local giant and get me some nitro, or my Starbucks and get me some nitro cold brew, hand me an AK-47, let me join up on that gang. (laughs) I gotta get my nitro. Well, you would have- You would
1: have joined the Ozu gang in Tokyo, which created a large market near the station by September 1945 and had an enormous sign with 117 hundred light bulbs advertising its location. It was so bright that it could be seen from several miles away. Profits were huge and the vendors, who were known as quote unquote peanuts, earned as much as 50 yen a day. By comparison, teachers were paid monthly salaries of 300 yen. Other gangs followed suit, and all over Japan, open-air markets sprang up. About 30% of those working in the markets were third-country people, so they weren't even uh, the Japanese. So, of course, you got all these gangs. Here we go. We got a turf war. With vast amounts of money to be made and simmering racist undercurrents fighting for control of the markets were probably inevitable. In June 1946, Hmm. fights broke out between the Formosan gangs, that's the Taiwanese, and the Japanese Yakuza group. Outside the Shibuya police station, over a 1,000 Matsuba members, which was the Yakuza, fought hundreds... Of Formosan gang members with clubs, metal pipes, and some small firearms. Seven Formosans were killed. That's actually not that many when it's a thousand versus hundreds. Right. And thirty-four were wounded. This sounds like the most polite gang fight ever.
0: Well, they were decked out in they were decked out in uh, samurai armor, and that's hard to.
1: Yeah, maybe it was karate based. <laughs> All right,
0: I didn't say that. Samurai and karate very different. <laughs> Very different, Kyle. All right, so let me let me br- let me brown splain something to you. Yes. <laughs> no, that's it. It's different.
1: <laughs> oh, that's it. <laughs> You're <Yeah>. done. <laughs> well, the Japanese police suffered casualties too. One policeman was killed and another injured. The Japanese public were outraged by the chaos and blamed the non-Japanese Asians and the. Incompetence of the Japanese police. Tensions between the Korean and Formosan communities mounted. More than forty Formosans were arrested in connection with the incidents, but their cases were quickly taken up by the Chinese component of Allied Command in Tokyo. It sounds like the Chinese were controlling Tokyo post World War Two. The men were given a very public trial, and the Japanese government was also forced to put the Tokyo policemen who were involved in the incident on trial, something that was unheard of in Japan. The trial resulted in 35 convictions. Sentences were either hard labor or deportation. The trial put a spotlight on the Chinese population in Japan. The Chinese used their influence in Allied command to grant special statutes.
0: So you're saying... During that time, even the Japanese couldn't tell that there were that many Chinese people in Japan?
1: I don't know that it was so apparent that there were so many Chinese people in Japan so much as the Chinese were using their influence.
0: And the government, that is, right? Correct? The Chinese government. right? They gave
1: special status to ethnic Chinese and gave them special rights, including extra rations, a privilege that was not granted to ethnic Koreans.
0: You mean ethnic Japanese?
1: No, ethnic Koreans. I guess there were a lot of Koreans there after the war as well. But it sounds like the Japanese had the least amount of rights, but I I don't know. We'd have to do a deeper dive into that. So that's the end of the article. We could go to this dude in the fictional novelization of a real-life serial killer, Yoshio Kodaria. Or we could also go to black markets. I bet there's Peruvian black markets. Um, Either
0: the black market or the serial killer. I think the serial killer might be a little more interesting.
1: More interesting, but I think harder to get to Inca-Cola. Unless...
0: I mean, I'm telling you, as long as we're still in Japan, you can still get to Inca-Cola.
1: Yoshio Koderia was a Japanese serial killer and rapist who murdered at least eight people in Tokyo and, sounded out. Tochigi Prefecture areas between 1932 and 1946. Kodaira killed his father-in-law in 1932 and later raped and murdered at least seven women from 1945 to 1946. Ah, we gotta leave you with a cliffhanger. We're gonna pick up next week with a little true crime. Diving into the World War II era serial killer, Yoshio Kodera, who killed at least seven people. This guy, not messing around. If you want to mess around with another podcast, though, check out my other podcast called The Roamers Book Club. It's an adventure book club that I do with white bones, and we talk about books that we read. You don't even need to read the book. Also, Jason has another podcast called Lewis Hamilton is Dope as Fuck and You Are Not. That one covers Formula One racing. Finally, music for the show was provided by Davey and the Chains and you can check them out on Spotify. The song is called Solid Gold Blues. And tune in next week when we pick up Where We Left Off with a good old-fashioned Japanese serial killer. Bye.
0: That's milky. And beans.